cave with two other guys. So I go up to this doorman building, take the elevator to the penthouse. Uh, this woman opens the door. I seem to re remember that she was wearing like leopard print pants and had a martini and a cigarette, but maybe that's just the, the writer in me, <laughs> you, you know? Uh, yeah, director's cut. But um, in any event, uh, she invited me in and it was uh, the nicest apartment I've ever seen. Welcome to Learn or Be Learned. We either learn from others or others learn from us. The former is able to help us become a better, faster you. Follow me weekly as I dig up stories like a true anthropologist would on one of the three series called Guest Conversations, Book Applications, or My Small Talk Explorations. I'm your host, Shiva Danshaker, and let's talk. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to another great episode on Learner Be Learned. I'm here with Robert Kerbeck. He is a person who went from an acting career to more corporate spy. He has really interesting stories and a background. He's now also an author to a great book that we'll get into here shortly. Uh, Robert, thank you for being here. If you could you know, share a little bit about yourself with the audience, that'd be great. Well, Shiva, I'm excited to be here. Now, if I had known you were in Dallas, Texas, um, I would have asked in advance if you were a Cowboys fan. And, <laughs> and it sounds like you just moved to Dallas, so you might not be a Cowboys fan yet. So that's good for me because <laughs> I'm from Philadelphia. My Eagles are undefeated. You're our big rivals. So right. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to bring you over to my side during the course of this program, okay? <laughs> uh, yes, we'll see. Yeah. You know, I'll do my best. If the show's interesting, maybe you'll pull for the Eagles next time. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I have this crazy story about how I became, um, you know, essentially the world's, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, greatest corporate spy. Um, you know, that's what people said about me. It's not what I said about myself. Um, and it was never anything I intended. Um, you know, I grew up in the Philadelphia area, obviously that's why I'm a big Eagles fan and my family is well known in the area. The Kerbeck family is, mm -hmm. is still to this day, big in the automobile business. Um, if you need a Lamborghini, uh, tell them I sent you, maybe they'll give you a discount. Probably <laughs> not. Um, but my great grandfather, um, sold horse carriages before automobiles were invented. And then he switched and got an automobile dealership. One of the first in Philadelphia. Then my grandfather took over that dealership. My father took over that dealership and I was supposed to take over that dealership. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was in college, I kind of fell in love with acting. I really wanted to move um, to New York and try acting, but I didn't know anybody that had done that. It seemed too scary. So when I graduated, I went to work at the dealership with my father mm -hmm. and um, it, it just didn't feel right for me. The kind of the trickery of car sales felt a little dishonest to me, which of course is very ironic because then... I become a corporate spy where the lying and deception is far worse than, than automobile sales. <laughs> but again, that's part of this crazy story of Michael mm -hmm. Ruse um, that, you know, um, we oftentimes in life end up in places we never, ever would have imagined. Our journeys go to, you know, uh, people and places that we just, we, you could never have predicted. And so when I moved to New York, uh, actors need survival jobs. Um, I didn't have the patience to be a waiter. I wasn't a late night guy. So bartending was out. And this friend of mine had this job and he kind of mentioned it and then he shut up right away as if he said something he wasn't supposed to say. And I said, whoa, 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 dude, 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 I'm broke. I need a job. What, what is this job that you have that you're being <laughs> right. so mysterious about? Yeah, like, don't hold back. And don't hold back. Yeah. Help, you know, help, help a brother out yeah, here. Right. And, uh, <laughs> So he um, very reluctantly got me an interview. He did not tell me anything about the job. I went up for this interview, which was on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, for your listeners that maybe don't know New York that well, that's the ritziest area of Manhattan. That's like mm -hmm. the old money. I was living in Hell's Kitchen in a cave with two other guys. So I go up to this doorman building, take the elevator to the penthouse, uh, this woman opens the door. I seem to re remember that she was wearing like leopard print pants and had a martini and a cigarette. But maybe oh, wow. that's just the, the writer <laughs> the in me. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, uh, director's uh, cut. <laughs> yeah. Director's <laughs> cut. But um, in any event, uh, she invited me in and it was uh, the nicest apartment I've ever seen. 
Um, mm. It was just spectacular. It looked like it was right out of a magazine. And so right away I knew whatever this woman did, it was very lucrative, right? She was mm. making a lot of money. Um, and so we have this very strange interview. She never asked me anything about my skills. She doesn't ask to see my resume, which, you know, back in the day, you actually had a physical copy of your resume. Mm. Um, you know, this is 90s. And um, she sends me on my way and I'm pretty sure I didn't get the job. But then my buddy calls and says, you got the job, but don't get too excited because she hires everyone because no one is able to do this job. Mm. And the next day I went out to Brooklyn uh, to, to begin training. And uh, now this is, again, this is when the crack epidemic is hitting Brooklyn hard. Brooklyn is not a neighborhood full of hipsters with beards and cool coffee shops. It's rundown, dangerous. Uh, get to this building, go walk up four flights of stairs, no elevator. I hear screaming and yelling and behind doors. And, and I don't quite know what I've got myself into. I knock on a door. This beautiful young woman opens it. She says, come on in. You'll work in my bedroom. And I still am going like, what the hell have I got myself into? Uh, we go into her bedroom. There's literally just a futon on the ground and a desk. And she says, have a seat at my desk, <laughs> <laughs> which I was happy about. I mean, she was attractive, but I didn't go there to, you know, yeah. get on her futon. <laughs> and, um, and she sits me down at the desk and she begins to say, look, what we do is we call, we use our acting skills and we call major corporations and we trick people using personas, using voices, using accents. Um, we trick people into giving us private corporate information, corporate secrets, corporate plans, information on products, information on people, information on salaries, basically anything that a rival would want to know about their, mm -hmm. their biggest competitor. And we do that and, and, you know, basically we're doing corporate espionage to get these secrets, um, which, you know, ended up being worth, you know, I mean, at this point I was getting $8 an hour and eventually towards the end of my spying career, I was making millions of dollars a year doing this. Wow. So, you know, that, that leads me to my first question here, which is, you know, you said that the lady told you we basically trick people and, you know, lie our way into getting, you know, secrets. Mm -hmm. Had that ever, you know, in your career, you ever do something that went against your value system or your beliefs? Um, and how did you cope with that if you did? Well, yeah. And I mean, that was the, you know, like I said, you know, I think what the woman who had the firm realized is if she was telling people in the interview that you were going to have to lie and do all this stuff, a lot of people would have just said, no, mm -hmm. thank you. But what she did is she kind of got you committed. Like, you know, there I was at the training. I'm getting mm -hmm. paid for the training. I'm a broke actor. I'm a young guy. I'm like, well, I do need a job. And so right. all of a sudden now she's kind of got pulling you in a little bit there. Right. And, you know, at the time, I real I rationalized it and, and there's no doubt, you know, I don't, I never say that I'm proud of what I did, though it is a hell of a good story and it's all true. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I've written, I've written this book. Uh, it's a true book about lying. <laughs> um, but I think that um, the way I rationalized it was we were getting information from corporations, right? Mm -hmm. And um, anybody who's listening, you know, you don't have to look far um, or really even look hard at all to see example after example of corporations bilking customers, taking advantage of customers, um, ripping off customers, you know, big corporations. Um, and so we were, for the most part, calling banks, you know, and, and then later we branched into other industries. But at the time, we were mainly calling banks. And, you know, you know again, you know, we can look in the news a couple of years ago, Wells Fargo was opening 30, 40 accounts in, in one individual's names to create bonuses for their salespeople, even though these people, their credit was negatively impacted. You know, Goldman Sachs, there are a lot of people that feel as though Goldman Sachs and a number of the big Wall Street banks were responsible for the crash of 2008, the greatest financial crash in our lifetimes, right? So mm -hmm. that, there was, that was part of it. I wasn't like getting old ladies' credit card numbers. You know, I wasn't ripping off, <laughs> you know, I wasn't ripping right. off you and me. I was like, basically, uh, yeah. you know, this is more capitalism. I'm going to ding Goldman Sachs or I'm going to ding JP Morgan, you know, boo-hoo for Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of how I rationalized it. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So it's it's almost like um, it's you're just uh, one guy against the corporations rather than going after individuals. Yeah. Right. I mean, that you know, that was I'm like, you know, OK, you know, first of all, every corporation and this is something, you know, again, your listeners you know, probably don't know. And this is why people have gotten excited about the book. You know, we all know the Russians spy on the Chinese and the Chinese spy on us. But most people are shocked to find out that corporations are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to spy on each other. And they all do it. Mm. You know, they all do it. And I know they all do it because they were all my clients. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, one day I was spying on this firm and the next day they were my client. You know, so, yeah. um, you know, I, that's again how I how I justified it is I'm like, they're all doing it. It's it's just part of our capitalist system for better mm. or for worse. Right. Right. And, and finally, uh, one last thing on that is that I was only this was only a temporary job. That's what I thought in my mind. This was only a temporary job. I was an actor. Soon I was going to be famous. Soon I was going to have my own TV series. Mm-hmm. And I did work a great deal as an actor. And again, your listeners can Google me and see. I did over 50 major TV shows, lead roles on Star Trek, Melrose Place, NYPD Blue, ER. Mm-hmm. Chicago Hope, Sisters, you know, all of these shows. And I was working as an actor, working as an actor. And so my acting career was kind of going like this and the spying was going. I was like, <laughs> you know, almost ready to be like, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm done with that. I don't need it anymore. And then all of a sudden I booked a whole bunch of TV pilots and none of them got picked up. And, and really what you needed, even today, what you really mm-hmm. need is you need to do a pilot that gets made into a series and that runs for a couple of years. And then everybody knows you and you really get established as an actor right. and have a long, successful career. You know, maybe you're not a movie star or whatever, but you're you're a working actor. Mm-hmm. And I was working a lot, but the pilots that I booked never got picked up. I did four of them. None of them went to series. Mm-hmm. And that kind of all of a sudden took the wind out of my sails. And that's the, the part in, in the book where... Um, I go deeper and deeper into the world of corporate espionage as my acting career wanes. I go deeper in the world. And then I have a lot of close calls, let's just mm. say, uh, with um, basically every authority on the planet. Wow. And, you know, what's really interesting about that is how common it is to see people in hindsight, people's life go full circle. Right. Mm. So how your corporate espionage and like spying career might actually help you back because I heard you're doing a TV series. Is that correct? Based on your well, book? yeah. I mean, look, that that's the most amazing thing that's come out of this whole uh, book is that um, when I started and I went to college before I fell in love with acting, I was an English major. Oh, okay. I was writing, so mm-hmm. that was really the first thing I did was I was writing, you know. And then mm-hmm. I was a young guy; I couldn't sit still. I had so much energy, and I wanted to meet uh, young women. And what a what better place to meet attractive young women than the theater, uh, which turned out to be the truth. Uh, and I highly advise it for your male listeners out there. If they look to meet some pretty young girls, you know, sign up for a play. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, I, you know, have basically circled back now with this book writing to where I really started. You know, mm-hmm. I'm back at the beginning and um, ruses in development for a TV series. I don't think I will be acting in it, though um, they have asked me about maybe playing my father in the in the series, because obviously I'm too young to play my my young self. I mean, I'm mm. too old to play my young self. Um, and that really kind of touched me, the idea of playing my dad. My dad's a big part of the book. He's kind of the heart and the anchor of the mm. book, um, because when I leave the car business, he's very... Um, you know, he's, he's kind of devastated by that. I was the oldest son and right. there had been this tradition. There was a placard on the front of our dealership that said since 1899. Mm. Um, and to have a business last that long, you know, was, you know, through generations was a really big deal. And here I was kind of turning my back on it. And then when I told my father, you know, that I was a corporate spy, you know, he was very concerned about that, obviously, <laughs> and, and not happy at all. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so he's a real big part of the book. And um, and and I don't think I'll play him in the movie because it's a great part. And I feel like with the TV series, um, there's some pretty well-known actors that might want to play that part. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, I, I think I'd, I'd rather have my TV show be successful, you know, um, right. because Leonardo DiCaprio is playing my father in it or, you know, right, whatever, right. whatever great at older, you know, actor my age. Um, right. 
than me do it and maybe, you know, maybe, you know, out of ego or something. Right. You do get the the benefit of names associated when you do showbiz. Yeah. But, you know, I think that, you know, that's also a very touching idea. And, and I want to ask you this because I relate uh, a lot. Um, for me, I switched career paths from medicine uh, to, you know, for a while, not even sure what I'm doing. But, you know, at the moment, you know, I'm uh, in data science and tech uh, and I do this. But, you know, for my parents, I was devastating after all those years and you know, mm. me getting closer and closer to getting that white coat um, to see that, you know, um, and I, I see the parallel in your story, right? You, you have a generations of car business um, and your dad probably just expected it, really. Yeah. Uh, it's been, you know, in your blood for so long. And then you took the turn, right? You're also the first yeah. Yeah. Oldest, same. Right. Oldest, so, yeah. so you set the path, right? So yeah. they were expecting it. You went against it. I want to ask, you know, what was that mindset? Um, you know, now it's easy, maybe easier because it's like, look, dad, or, you know, look, look uh, to whoever, uh, what I've done now, right? In hindsight, but in the moment, what was your mindset uh, going through all that? Well, you know, it was, it was very, very difficult. You know, I mean, you know, from, I'm sure you're too, you know, your parents, you know, they love you and they want the best for you. And usually, you know, they're thinking about career success, right. And, and mm -hmm. career success and monetary success, because they, they want you to, to live right. a, a happy, comfortable life. Right. Um, and, you know, here I am telling my, you know, here I am an English major, like, good luck with that one, right? <laughs> right. And then I get into acting, you know, and my right. father's like, oh my God, you know, like it's, it, and, you know, my father, you know, he, you know, like, the, the, you know, growing up when he grew up in the fifties, you know, like the idea of being an artist, at least for him, it, uh, it was just, it was just so beyond the beyond that when mm -hmm. I told him these ideas, yeah, no, he was, he was not happy at all. Um, not, and not, and, and not supportive at all either, which, you know, that's part of the book too, you know, cause there was a lot of pain around that, you know, there was pain for me that he didn't support me in this journey at all. Um, um, now he came around to it late in life and, and this is in the book, you know, unfortunately my father's, he's, he's gone and he's been gone for a while and, and his death is a big part of the book. And that's why I said, he's like the anchor of the book because mm -hmm. he, at the end of his life came around to supporting me, mm -hmm. um, which was really beautiful. And at the end of his life, we got very close, but there was a lot of tough times right. because when I left the business, you know, the business kind of did go downhill um, for a long time because, you know, my father at that point was a little bit older. I was young, fresh blood and, you know, in, in the car business, um, you know, I know car sales gets a lot of, um, you know, has some negative, ram you know, uh, negative people think negatively, negative mm -hmm. connotations. But I'm here to tell you, being a car dealer is hard work. Run you oh, know, yeah. you're running a small business. You're there six days a week. Now I think car dealerships are even open on Sundays. So, you know, you're there all the time. You know, mm -hmm. if you want your business to be successful, you know, you're there 60, 60 plus hours a week, every right. week. And, um, and my father was a little bit older and I came in, I was young, I had energy and I was willing to work those hours and I was good at it. Mm -hmm. So for me to be so good at it and willing to work so hard and then leave it, right. um, I know that was heartbreaking for him. Right. Right. And so what, what did you do as your support system or how did you find that, uh, within yourself or, you know, how did you go about it? You know, uh, it was like, you know, this expression, let the tor torpedoes be damned. It, I just said, look, I have to live my life. Mm -hmm. You know, this is my life. Um, and I can't, you know, I, I was afraid that if I stayed at the dealership, that my father would be helpful, happy, and I would probably make a, a ton of money, um, which is which is ironic because I ended up making a ton of money at corporate spying, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that right. at the time. Right. Um, but uh, I think I would have made a ton of money, but I also think that, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe I would have been um, really susceptible to depression or, or drug use or, you mm -hmm. know, any of these things that happen when we make decisions in life that aren't the decisions we really want to make and we're not happy with. Right. And right. so now you're living a life for someone else. You know, you're in a relationship, you don't, with someone you don't want to be in, you're in a job you don't want to be in, you know, you're, 
you know, whatever the situation that you find yourself stuck in, if you don't get out of it, you know, there's a cost, you know, there's a cost for that, you know, and, um, and I just was not going to, to, I was not going to live the life that my father wanted uh, me to live um, for him. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't going to do that. So, um, so I got out and it was, it was a, it was a very, very difficult time in my relationship with my father when I left. And it took a long time, a lot of years. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it was, you know, when I started doing TV shows, you know, so now I'm doing TV shows with George Clooney and I'm doing plays with James Gandolfini and, you Mm -hmm. know, and I'm, I'm getting hit on by Kevin Spacey, you know, (laughs) I'm drinking beers with Paul Newman. Right. Uh So I had all these incredible experiences. And when those started happening and I started popping off on TV, Mm -hmm. then my father started to come around to go, Oh wow. Well, you know what? Maybe he was right to take this journey. Right. um, There's this famous Bruce Springsteen story. Bruce Springsteen's father, kind of same thing, was basically like, you know, musician, like rock star, like, what are you crazy? Mm-hmm. Come and work in the factory, you know, don't be, a, don't be an idiot, right? right. And uh, and they had a lot of difficult times for for many years because you know Bruce Springsteen, you know, it was a long time, you know, it wasn't until his his I think third album, Born to Run, that became you know one of the greatest albums of all time that mm-hmm. really put him on the map. But you know, he had a number of years where he was, you know, you know. You know, living in a surf shack and, and, and you know, broke. Um, right. And at one point he was getting married um, and now he's a famous rock star and he's getting married and the ceremony and all the people and there are all these helicopters flying overhead, paparazzi, <laughs> trying uh-huh. to get shots wow. and filming it. And, uh, and the father looks up at all the helicopters and all the, the crazy scene and the buzz and the, and, you know, and he goes, well, he goes, looks like I was wrong about you not taking that rock and roll career, you know? And, yeah, right. uh, and I love that story that it, it, that's what it took for the father to admit, right? right? It's kind of like my dad too. It's like, well, you're on TV, you know, with, with famous people. So yeah, maybe I was wrong. Right. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's, Resistance is hard, um, especially when you haven't come through the other side. So you don't have that social proof to, you know, say yeah. what you, you know, I chose this because of this. And when you have that social proof, people will be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Right. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, very clear. The path is clear. But when you're in it and you're in the trenches and doesn't seem very clear, then, um, you know, I love this quote. It says, you know, life is hard for one of two reasons. You either are trying to get out of your comfort zone or you're staying in it. And Mm. I think that's so true because, you know, whether you're pushing yourself now, it's really uncomfortable. Or if you stay in your comfort zone now, like you with the car dealership, right? Maybe in 30 years, you might've been like, I could have done something, you know, I could have done acting. I could have tried something else. And that kind of regret honestly scares me more than failing and trying. So well, that, I mean, I mean, Shiva, that's genius what you just said because there, the, that's the truth. Look, I worked as an actor. You know, I have a pension from the Screen Actors Guild, which is a pretty cool thing to be able to say. You know, I, right. I feel like it's it's like I made the major leagues. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you know much about baseball, but you know, I think they have twenty five guys on the team. So, like, you know, I was the twenty fifth guy in the major <laughs> leagues, or the twenty fourth right. guy. You know, right? Pretty cool, pretty cool. Yeah. But you know. What, did I become the famous actor that I wanted to be? No. Right. And was that disappointing? Yes. But I went for it. So, so disappointment. Okay. We're all going to have disappointments, but what we don't want to have are those lifelong regrets, right? right? That you didn't try to do this, that you didn't, you know, do whatever thing, you know, at least give it a shot. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's the that's the difference. Disappointments are inevitable in life, but what you don't want are those big regrets. Right. Did you have any regrets along your path or did you make an effort to avoid them? I made an effort to avoid them. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, was an English major in college because that really appealed to me. And and now that's really worked out because now I've, you know, written two, two books that I'm very proud of. Right. Um, I wrote this book, Ruse. Um, about corporate spying. And then my previous book was Malibu Burning, which was um, about the wildfire in Malibu that burned half the town down a few Mm -hmm. years ago that my family, we fought the fire and we saved our house. 
Um, 17 of 19 houses on our street burned to the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, LA Times asked me to write an essay about that. And then a publisher read that essay and asked me to write this book. And, you know, it was a real um, labor of love because, you know, people died, animals died, people lost their homes. When, right. you know, when, when a wildfire burns your home down, I mean, everything is gone. Everything mm -hmm. is incinerated. Nothing survives, you know, right. the house, the refrigerator, like, you know, the family Bible, uh, your grandfather's World War I uniform, you know, if you're a kid, every drawing, you know, everything gone, right? right? So it's just devastating for people. And so I was happy that I could write a book that, you know, showed um, kind of the resilience of the community out here. Everybody thinks everyone in Malibu is rich or famous. I'm here to tell you that's not the case. <laughs> uh, you know, there are some famous people, of course, but, um, and it was really an amazing thing how many people fought the fire like we fought the fire and saved our own home there were many people that fought the fire and saved entire neighborhoods um wow. you know uh you know 80 year old people like mm -hmm. you know with boots mm -hmm. stamping out fire saving homes it was really crazy um and beautiful what people did so so you know so again i was an english major it enabled me to now you know pivot into writing and we're living in a world right now where a lot of people are thinking about pivoting, right? Pivoting mm. careers because, you know, coming out of COVID, we all, you know, learned that life is short, you know, and, yeah. um, and better, you better do what it is you want to do. And so, you know, that, you know, you talked about pivoting from, from maybe being a, a doctor, pivoting into something different. So I encourage people, if, if what you're doing isn't working for you, whether it's in your love life or your professional life, it's never too late to pivot to something else. Mm -hmm. You know, here I am, you know, I'm in my you know mid fifties and I just published my first books a couple of years ago, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Ruse this year, um, Malibu burning was 2019. So, you know, to be, to become an author, you know, at 50, um, you know, uh, you know, if I could do it, you know, somebody else right. can do it, you know, and by the way, you could become a doctor at 50, you can become right, a podcaster right. at 50, right? right? There are all kinds of things you can do. And um, I think that's, um, you know, if, if anybody takes anything out of this and, and my book, um, it's I had a lot of careers. I had a mm -hmm. lot of different careers. And um, and I'm glad that I went on that journey, you know, because that's right. what life is. It's a journey. So go on the journey you want to go on. Right. And, you know, you said that you had an English major and I was when I was doing my pre-med uh, pre-med is just requirements. You can do any major you want. So I took on, you know, most people took science, right? Biology, neuroscience. That's where I was at first. And then I f fell in love with anthropology and theology. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what I majored in along with pre-medicine. Um, and, you know, I think I had a similar circumstance because once I entered the workforce, I realized those majors don't make a difference <laughs> to employers at all. <laughs> right, right? right. So, so, and then, you know, the question I've always kind of hated the most in the last few years is, you know, you know, was it a waste? Was it a waste of time? Um, mm. I hate that question because yeah, it's, yeah. my answer is always the same. It's, it's, you know, I don't know yet, you know, because it's only something you can answer in hindsight when right. I look back and say, oh, I'm so glad I did it because it helped keep me here. But I don't know that yet, right? So where I wanted to segue that is like how it wraps up with what you're saying is um, I love this idea of life being like a dance rather than a journey of start to finish. Because mm -hmm. when it's a dance, you can comfortably pivot and not make it seem like you're moving backwards, if that makes sense, right? Oh, the mindset. Yeah, right most people's mindset is moving forward or backwards right. but with a dance you can move you can step to the side you can go forward it's backwards it's it's all the same there is no end goal you're just right. living life um I so i that. yeah and i think it really matches with what you're saying is you know you've had many career changes you tried things you became an actor maybe not as far as you wanted to go but that's that was your pivot you know that was the part of the dance so yeah yeah, right. yeah and and you know um you know, like the, 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 even like being an English major today, I read an article recently in Los Angeles times. It said, where, where did all the English majors go? Mm -hmm. And it was talking about in today's world, um, fewer and fewer people are choosing humanities as their major, uh, as undergraduates. I get right. it. Right. Schools are very expensive. 
you're going to take out a whole bunch of student loans, uh, which I did because I paid for college myself because my father didn't want to pay for me to be an English major because he was mad. Right. He wanted me to study business. Right. Um, so I had to pay for college myself. And um, so I get it. Right. Um, but I'm here to tell you that in the world we live in, what do we do more than almost anything today? We write. Right. Every tweet, every Instagram post, every Facebook post, you know what I mean? You're texts. doing right. You're, yeah, yeah, texts, emails, you're writing all day long. And if you're in the corporate world, you're writing stories. Every mm -hmm. one of your notes about right. a deal, about a meeting, about an appointment, about something that somebody needs to do or you need to, you know, there's communication that's going on. And it's almost always... Um, written communication because people don't get on the phone as much anymore, right? Right. Especially young people, right? right. The phone is kind of, we're not getting on the phone. Right. And so think about, so I'm just talking in terms of my English major. Um, it's that major is so valuable. I think people don't realize that. And this article in the Los Angeles Times, it didn't get to that, which I really want to write that author, you know, because it was an interesting article. But I think he missed on talking about how in our world today, we write more than we've ever written before. Everybody, you know, because remember, not that long ago, you know, many people couldn't read. Many people mm. couldn't write. Well, we're fortunate we live in a society now where most people go to school and learn to read and write. Very high percentage. So everybody, you know, is doing this. And so the idea of being an English major, um, far from being this esoteric thing that isn't going to pay off. I mean, I think the skills that I developed as a writer helped me in my corporate America job, my corporate spying job. I mean, you know, I mean, cause I was, I had to, you know, then take the information that I was getting yeah. and I had to put it into documents. I had to tell stories right. with the, you know, so that they communicated well to my clients and they, I know they appreciated that, which is why they paid me a you know ton of money mm -hmm. because I was able to create these documents that were really well written. Um, and, um, and, and fun to read too, you know? So anyway, a great time. Uh, Chiba, what a pleasure. Great, great, uh, great call and fly Eagles fly. <laughs> of course, of course. Anyways, thank you all for listening to this episode and I'll catch you guys on the next one. Thanks. No, that I actually think that's a, that's a great point. I actually didn't think of that because humanities and the degrees in humanities often develop better soft skills, right? That's mainly where the focus is, whether it's writing, speaking, presenting, research. Um, and, and I think yeah. I've actually noticed that in the job for, in the workforce, right? Um, a lot of people have hard skills, technical skills, um, but not a lot of people are good at communicating, public speaking, writing, like we've been talking about, right? So these softer skills, I think are more neglected and you know that could just be due to the fact that college is so overpriced now that yeah. people don't want are scared to pay for soft skills like that yeah. but you know i'm grateful for how you know where, where i've come so far and and I, I that is a very interesting point that you made that i see yeah well i mean and like i said you know uh college uh, is overpriced um, and it's really wrong that people, you know, young people should have to go into 50,000, 60,000, yeah. 75,000, whatever it is, dollars in debt just to get a college degree. Uh, yeah. That's just wrong, you know. Um, yeah. So I understand the pressures, you know, to, you know, study science, to study engineering, to study computers. Um, but I'm here to tell you, I made millions and it all started with an English degree. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, yeah. I'm not saying I recommend a career in corporate spying, <laughs> but if your listeners want to contact me, they can go to my website, robertkerbeck.com. Um, you can easily email me from my website. And I'm here to tell you corporate spying is alive and well. I don't do it anymore for obvious mm -hmm. reasons. I've outed myself with this book. But there's plenty of work for corporate spies out there. So if any of anyone's listening right now and they're like, hey, I think I would like to pivot into corporate spying, email me from yep. my site and I'll, I'll tell you how to do it. Yep. And I'll have all that in the podcast description, guys. Just click the link and, and shoot your shot. Yeah, um, yeah. Go for it. Go and for and it. I'm this is actually really interesting. I don't think the audience members know this. Robert is 
a man with many talents in accents. Is that correct? Ah, yes. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that we learn, and this is, it, it, you know, it took me a while to realize this, but the crazier the ploy we would use to get information, right? The crazier it was, the more believable it became. It was very mm -hmm. counterintuitive, right? And we learned this, you know, and you, you sometimes see this, they'll, they'll do this in a movie where somebody will create, create some crazy disturbance in the movie. And you think like, wow, they're drawing all this attention in themselves. Right. But in a weird sort of way, by doing it, it puts people at ease and then they get away with whatever it is they're trying to get away mm -hmm. with, right? So, you know, we, and all the different people that trained me to do this job, we all had our go-to accent. You know, one woman, she, she used the Irish accent. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody else was English. My go-to was German, you know? So mm -hmm. I'd be like, this is Gerhardt calling from the office in Frankfurt. <laughs> We have the European Union regulators here, and we need some information from the states. And 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 you know, we think about it. You know, the you know the, these corporations are huge, right? They have offices, mm -hmm. you know, in Tokyo, London, right, right. Frankfurt, Berlin, right, all over the world, Paris, you know. And so, when somebody gets that crazy call, what do they say? They go, "Hey, Gerhard, hey, what's going on, man? Yeah, right. You know, well, well, what's what, what's going? What's the weather like there in Germany? You know, well, you know, yeah. and, and you get this friendship because their day is they're talking to the same old people. It's boring. All of a sudden, they got somebody that they believe is in the Frankfurt office mm. and is jammed up and needs some help. They want to be a good corporate teammate. Mm -hmm. They're enjoying this guy and his crazy accent. What do right. they do? They help you and they give you information. And every once in a while, they'd start going, well, Gerhardt, you know, you know, what do you need all this information, you know, uh, uh, you know, from the, uh, you know, from the States, if you're in Germany, you know, and you go, oh, the European Union needs this information. They are <laughs> very strict here in the Germany, you know, and, yeah. and then they're like, wow, man, okay, well, what do you need, buddy? You know, and now they're telling you all this information, right? Right. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so That's that was awesome. kind of my that was my go-to. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So so um, you know, I'm I'm assuming there's probably some sort of manipulation tactics too to you know dis you know disalarm people, make them yes. feel comfortable. Yeah. Did you have to read books? How, how how did you learn that those kind of tactics? You know, I think that part of that was just in my DNA from growing up in the car business. You know, my dad. You know, when I was learning to sell cars, he said, you know that. What you have to do is you have to identify right away um, the customer's objections to buying the car right now, right? Mm -hmm. um, because ideally, you know, you want somebody to come in and buy a car right mm -hmm. then and there, buy the car, you know? And so you had to identify what was their objection, you know, was the objection they didn't like the car. They didn't like the color of the car. They didn't like this about the car, you know, and then maybe you could get them onto a different car or, or, you know, find the, the exact car that, that we had. Maybe we didn't have the right color, but there was another dealership that we could trade and then we'd have that car, you know, so you would identify what the objection was. It was the same thing with getting people to give information, right? Um, now, the first thing I would do is I would always set up every conversation um, and I, you know, with a softball question, you know, yeah, you know, so I'd be, be like, hey, Shiva, um, you're, you're, uh, you're in the Dallas office, right? And you'd go. I'd be like, right. Yeah, I'm in the yeah. Dallas. Oh, okay. Hey, great. You know, ha, ha, hey, yeah, Cowboys. Boy, they, you know, they, the great game, right? Yeah, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> right. So I'm establishing two things. One, mm -hmm. I asked you a question and you answered it. Where, where mm -hmm. are you based, Dallas? You answered it, right? So if you answered one question, much more likely that you're going to answer a second question, a third question, as opposed to, hey, Shiva, you're in the Dallas office, and somebody could go, uh, why are you asking me that question? Mm -hmm. Right now. If I get that, I know I've got a, I've got someone initially very suspicious, mm. you know, because it's such a simple thing. You're in the Dallas office. It's not, it, again, it's not a big, I'm not asking you spy questions yet. Right. I'm setting you up with the most innocuous question that there is. Mm. And 99% of the time, the person goes, yeah, I'm in the Dallas office. Oh, hey. and now, and now I start working on becoming a telephone buddy with you. We're becoming pals. Right. And then I start asking you some other questions. But I keep the questions very, very generic, no big deal. And so I get you kind of hooked with some easy questions. And once I've established you'll answer questions, 
and you've answered two, why won't you answer three? If you've answered three, why won't you answer four? And all of a sudden, each question starts getting more and more intense mm -hmm. and more and more the intelligence I need. And usually what happens is somewhere about halfway through that people have now given me a lot of information and now they get nervous. And now they mm -hmm. go, uh, hey, uh, I don't know if I should be giving you all this information. And then, well, look, we're almost done now to, you know, you know, another minute and a half and we're done. You know, let's just right. finish this up. You, you know, I, you know, I only need this information once every two years with the regulators and the blah, 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 and the, whatever story I've concocted. And they're like, oh, and because they have kind of already committed to it, they finish, mm. they finish. And sometimes at the end of it, they're like, oh, you know, um, and then other times they're not. Some people are, are just giving me information nonstop. And in many cases, I would be able to come back to them time after time to the same wow. person with the same story for years. And they would basically sort of become an internal mole. Um, mm -hmm. And they would be providing me information, um, you know, for, for a long, long time. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. So are most of these stories, are there stories in your books from, you know, what you've done? And, you know, what oh, yeah. can people yeah. expect in your book? Yeah, so it's, you know, you see me doing all of these ploys, you know, the inside ploy, the compliance ploy, the dropping the grapefruit ploy, you know, we created all of these, you know, the, the Gerhardt ploy, right? We right. had all of these ploys that we used to get information, you know, mm -hmm. and I mean, I personally think even, I mean, I wrote this book ruse during COVID um, and coming out of COVID, I wanted my book to be fun. I wanted it to be something fun to read. It's a page turner. It reads like a spy novel because it is a spy novel, but it's all true. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that for anybody that's uh, interested in, in utilizing these techniques in terms of sales, uh, invaluable. And also, if you want to see what not to do and how not to get fished and how not to get scammed, you will learn all of that in this book. That's perfect. I think people do definitely need to like hear that, especially with technology now, you know, it's becoming more and more advanced. It's actually becoming kind of scary how easily someone can hack into you. Uh, you know, someone could send you a bank email that looks just like your bank and you click on the link and that's it game over. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, and uh, it's that, well, like you said before, you know, it's really interesting with psychological and manipulation tactics. Um, I think like what you were talking about is like foot in the door, right? You slowly edge someone into keep doing stuff. And, you know, I think I read something like if you want to ask someone to do something, you're more likely to get them to do it if you add a reason to the end of the request, right? So right. if you say, you know, can I cut in line because I'm running late for this? And apparently it can even be a bad reason, but just because you gave a reason, people are way more likely to let you cut because, you know, why else would you ask, right? So right. I think that's so interesting. I'm sure you learned a lot of, uh, you know, sales, you know, manipulation, people, those kind of skills. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that was most fascinating is when we started doing the job, uh, you know, again, that woman hired me. And initially, she only hired women to do the job because she thought women made better spies. Hmm. Um, and then she hired my buddy. My buddy in the book is called Pax. And um, he was the first guy she ever hired. And then he got me hired. And then we were the only men that she hired for a or that worked out for a long, long time. The women were better. They were better at the job than we were, especially in the beginning. And my buddy and I learned like, wow, you know, these women are killing us in this job They're, you know, and they would back in the day, you know, we're talking nineties, um, you know, most of the assistants and receptionists were female. And so they would be a receptionist calling another receptionist or be a secretary calling another secretary mm. or be a, an assistant calling right. another assistant. And they would play the, my boss is horrible. My boss <laughs> is yelling at me. Sometimes right. they would cry. I mean, That's they, genius. you know, yeah, one of the one of the uh, uh, female spies was like could cry like that, you know, and and so you know now she gets this assistant on the and I you know when she was training me I was like this isn't gonna work you're crying on the phone like come on and the person <laughs> on the phone would go okay well calm down no no oh, it's my not gosh. that bad my look my boss yells at me all the time too <laughs> I will help you what do you need right and, she, and they would get the information wow. just because she cried on the phone yeah and so when I, I would call the assistant. <laughs> 
I wasn't going to be able to cry. Right, and right. so all of a sudden, you know, the, and the assistants, remember assistants, receptionists, they're trained to be gatekeepers. They're trained mm-hmm. not to give this information. And so me and my buddy Pax, we were getting shot down all the time. And we began right. to realize we needed to develop, we needed to develop different ploys. And what we began to learn was we would go right to the major executives, right to the big shot senior executives. And we would be a big shot senior executive in a different office. Someone whose name they would recognize, but, but, you know, these firms are so big now that, you know, most people don't have direct, but they would go, oh yeah, you're out in the LA office in the compliance department. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, great to talk to you. It's also kind of like a slap in the face if you really are someone who's bigger up in a different office and they go, you know, you're not real and they really are, you know, it's kind of a slap in the face, so they might avoid it. Yeah. No, we, no, we, no, for sure. That was part of our plan. We were using the corporate hierarchy and our seniority as a cudgel Mm. to basically force the executive who was a VP. And I was saying I was a senior VP. Mm. They didn't want to rock that boat. Right. And so what we found is that when we went bro to bro, executive to executive, we got far more information. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that the executives were far easier marks than the receptionists and the assistants. Right. They, I think they'd be, I think at, if you were someone that was an executive, right. I think your thought process would be that you'd be a low suspect. It's like who would actually go after someone higher up in the hierarchy. Right. So right. they probably had their guard down. That's, that's really smart too. That's really, that's, that's, that, that, that makes an interesting stories for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's also, you know, again, I, you know, I wrote the book, so it's fun and, you know, it's fun, like, cause you know, some of these executives that I'm calling that I'm rusing, uh, hence the title of the book, um, you know, they're making, you know, $10 million a year, $20 million mm. a year, and they're pretty arrogant. And, and there were a number of calls that I had with executives that they were, you know, uh, jerks and they were, you know, really rude. And so the reader, I think a lot of times enjoys, even though they know I'm doing something that's wrong. Right. They're kind of like, yeah, you got that, <laughs> that Wall Street guy. Way to right. go. You know, and again, it's kind of that David versus Goliath. Thing. Yeah, just, right. you, you knew, at least in the early days of me doing this job, you know, I was trying to be an actor. I wasn't making a lot of money. Right. And so when you see me get taking, you know, getting this guy's making $10 million a year as being a jerk yeah. and I get him to give up state secrets, it, it's kind of fun. You're like Robin Hood, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Robert, I really enjoyed having you here on this show, and I loved our conversation. I want to ask you one more question to close out the show. You know, It's called Learn or Be Learned, so I want to ask you, what is one thing that you either learn from others or you want others to learn from you along your journey so far? Well, you know, learn or be learned, ruse or be rused, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, right. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you, you know, you're either, you know, doing a con or being conned oftentimes mm-hmm. in life. And again, you know, I'm not advising anybody to, to follow uh, my career as a corporate spy, but um, I do think one of the things um, that people will get from the book is how not to be taken advantage of, how not to be taken advantage of in business and how not mm-hmm. to be taken advantage of even more in personal relationships, because, you know, in the book, you, you know, you go on this journey with me. And at a certain point, I actually take a job in corporate America because I'm going broke uh, after the crash of 2008, when all corporate spying just stopped. Um, I, and I had a mortgage and a family and I needed a job. So I take this job in corporate America. And what was amazing is um, how the line done in corporate America face to face was far worse than the lying I'd been doing over the phone, right? Wow, yeah. So here I am, I have this job. I think people were all on the same team. We're all working together and everybody was lying to me, lying behind my back, Every and, and not just me, mm-hmm. everybody. It was so cutthroat. Mm-hmm. It was such a, like a, you know, you know, and again, this is Wall Street. And so I guess this is just the way these firms are, but you know, you, you watch some of the TV shows and you see that, right? You know, some of the great Wall Street shows like Billions and there's a mm-hmm. new one, uh, called industry on HBO, where you see just these people that work together that one second they're fun, they're having fun, they're drinking, then mm-hmm. some of them are even sleeping together, and yet they're stabbing each other in the wow. back any chance they get. And and so, um, you know, so if people do pick up ruse, which of course I hope they do, and if you are seeing me 
tricking all these people and you're getting a little bummed out like, man, this guy Robert is tricking all these people. Don't worry. Read a few more pages because pretty soon I become the victim. I'm the um, one getting rused in corporate America. I'm the one being taken advantage of and ripped off. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so it's kind of a fun twist. And again, uh, I think, you know, learn to be learned, ruse or be rused. Right. right. Uh, you know, I love here that. I am supposedly such a great ruser and right. I got rused. <laughs> right. Right. That's awesome. I mean, you know, I think uh, if you like read Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power and, and books like that, I think people often will say things like, you know, that that book's very dark. Um, you know, it's very manipulative, things like that. But I think the power in that kind of knowledge is to know what to avoid, what to mm. uh, what to expect from potentially others, right? You know, and not everyone's like you. Some people are worse. Some people are better, you know. So it's good to arm yourself with that kind of knowledge, right? Ruse or be rused. So you, it's good to know the tactics and manipulation, you know, not necessarily condoning using it, but it's like self-defense, right? Exactly. Be aware. Be aware. Like, oh, wait a second now. I got this uh, email and this text and it's really pressuring me, time pressure, do this now, click on this now. Mm -hmm. Well, man, in that ruse book, that's what he was doing to get people to give up those secrets. Right. You know, same kind of thing, right? You see the, you know, how, how similar, you know, wh whatever the form is, whether it's rusing on a phone call, phishing, you know, uh, via email and text. And by the way, the best uh, social engineers, what I call rusers, um, that are now doing all these major ransomware attacks, they use a combination of both old school and new school. So for example, they send out the phishing email and then they follow it up with a phone call. Hey, mm. you know, so you get the email, uh, you know, from or the text from Bank of America that your account has been hacked and then they follow it up. Hey, this is Bank of America. Did you get our email? You have a very serious situation. We need to rectify this. I just have a couple of questions. I'm going to take care of this for you right now. Mm. Wow. How do you, you know, like that, that's pretty, pretty hard good, to, yeah. right? That's good. That's mm -hmm. a good one. Yeah. And so they're using both, you know, the tech and the old school personal touch. It's like a double whammy. And unfortunately, a lot of people fall for that one. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think people would really benefit from, you know, learning how to, you know, self-defense and, and manipulation and, you know, take a look at your book. It will be in the podcast description, like, like we mentioned earlier. But anyways, Robert, thank you so much for being here.